This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. Guys, we have the absolutely brilliant Zena Hits with us today, a tutor at St. John's College author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life, really one of the best books of the year, and we're going to talk about the importance of learning. So lately on Good Faith Effort, we've been talking a lot about the book of Leviticus, and I actually think Leviticus is the perfect place to begin this discussion. How many times have you heard that sentence? So Leviticus is the story of two mountains. The first is Mount Sinai. That's where the entire book is set. In the aftermath of the revelation of the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, Leviticus records this dizzying, detailed array of teachings that God delivers to Moses and the Israelites on the mountain itself and the valley down below, Mount Sinai. Now, the major focus of Leviticus is on the temple, its rituals, the priests, the Levites who serve there, its role as a spiritual focal point for the Israelites. And that brings us to the second mountain, Mount Moriah on which the temple in Jerusalem would eventually be built and where the teachings of Leviticus would eventually culminate. So two mountains, one Sinai, where the book begins, and the other Moriah, where it aspires to end. But here's the thing. The Bible itself actually treats those two mountains very differently. Both of them are described as holy, but the holiness of Sinai is temporary. And as soon as the Israelites leave there, the Bible never again describes it as sacred. And in fact, the Israelites appear to be permitted to treat it the same as any other mundane location. Mount Moriah, by contrast, stays holy forever. So think about Isaiah's vision of the final redemption. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So why does Mount Moriah get holy and Mount Sinai doesn't? What does Mount Moriah have that Mount Sinai lacks? And an answer, I think, lies in the ancient tradition that identifies Mount Moriah the location of the temple, as the very same mountain upon which Abraham's near sacrifice of his son Isaac occurred, Moriah. Because in that sense, Sinai and Moriah tell us opposite stories. Sinai is the story of God coming down to man, while Moriah is the story of man going up in search of God. So Sinai is about humanity passively receiving wisdom, and Moriah, on the other hand, is a quiet, confusing moment of discovery in which an otherwise unremarkable person took the remarkable step of actively seeking out wisdom. And through an extraordinary combination of sacrifice, obedience, and even questioning, actually learned something new. It was the first time in the ancient world that a father, Abraham, was taught that he did not own his family. And that's why Sinai's holiness was momentary while Moriah's is forever. Right? The Bible subtly emphasizes that our task is not to wait passively for enlightenment and transcendence, but rather to actively pursue it, to learn as much as we can about the world around us and our place in it, and to do so not for some ulterior motive or utilitarian purpose, but because it in itself is beautiful. So what does that look like in today's world, and how do we balance the beauty of learning for its own sake against other potential values? Right, so how, in other words, should we spend the very limited amount of time we're given upon this earth? The most important question any of us could ask. And there couldn't be a more important question, and in fact, there couldn't be a better person to help try and answer it, or at least help us think about it, than Professor Zena Hitz, or tutor Zena Hitz, a faculty member at St. John's College. I know the, the nomenclature is different over there, and author of the phenomenal Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Zena, thank you so much for being here. So great to be here. Thank you so much. One of the things I love that I don't get to do enough of is to talk about the Bible. So I'm particularly excited 
Well, you are in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> just let me so, know. I already have a thought about Mount Moriah. I'm happy to go there whenever you want. So just let me know. I'm just going to jump into that. Like, what's your hottest take about Leviticus and Mount Moriah? <laughs> Here was the take that you just inspired me with the way that you were talking about Mount Moriah as being the place where we search for God, because, of course, it's also the place of sacrifice. So Abraham has to strip himself of everything that he cares about most as he climbs up the mountain. And that just really resonated with how I think about the search for God and the search for learning, that it's very demanding. It's beautiful and wonderful, but we have to be willing to hold lightly everything that we really care about because it's going to take us in places that we don't foresee. And that's such a great place actually to jump in because that's a great prelude to your story, which I may not seem unusual, I suppose, to you because you lived it. But, Hi. you know, we live in a culture that's so relentlessly like results obsessed in a practical work sense. And you, by contrast, have this really unusual childhood that I think, as, as you write in the book, holds things lightly. But it's unusual, at least in the context of today's culture, because what at least what you describe, and I'd love to hear a little bit about it and hear more about it, what you describe is this sort of way of growing up where you're led naturally or deliberately, at least, to joyful and earnest consideration of big questions and interesting questions and nature and so on and so forth. So can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, you know, it's something that I um, didn't even notice was particularly unusual until really relatively late in life. And even now I notice more and more, you know, my my parents, thanks be to God, are still around. And I, I go back to see them and I'm like, does everyone's family have conversations like this? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I grew up the same way. <laughs> But uh, both of my parents and my, my brother, we like to think about things. And no one was a professional. I mean, my father's a teacher, but he taught um, early childhood education. And my mother did various odd jobs, and they both loved to read. But it wasn't professional. It was just what we liked to do. So we would get into big arguments. We read a lot. The arguments were very trivial on things like lunar eclipses uh, or various historical situations, animal facts. My brother and I were huge collectors of animal facts. And so it felt very natural to me to study liberal arts in college. When I first went to St. John, where I teach now, I was also there as an undergraduate. When I first set foot on campus, I was a, still a high school student. I was there for a summer program. And I hadn't known that it was the right place for me, but there was something about this environment of sitting around a table talking about books in this open-ended way that was just instantly resonant. I thought, oh yes, this is what I've always wanted. And so I feel very grateful to have had from early childhood an interest in big questions and to feel at home thinking about things without knowing what the result is going to be or what the outcome is going to be, but just think about things for its own sake. And that's helped me throughout my life. So it's so funny because I, I, I'm now like 33% suspicious that I was abandoned by your family at birth, right? <laughs> like I kind of like, you know, growing up, I, I'm very fortunate and very grateful. My parents who were amazing, but you know, growing up, anytime my friends would go to amusement parks or basketball games or whatever it was, my father would take me to like civil war battlefields. So like one of my earliest memories of like a fun day trip that I did with a parent was like going to Gettysburg. Not for like a school trip or for a port or anything, but just to see Little Round Top, you know, and to see the like the orchard, you know, and learning about Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and all those things. So I guess one of the things that I'm so curious about is, first of all, 
you know, your book is kind of about the love of learning in general, and that can take so many different forms. And on the contrary, it's actually a very personalized journey. But your particular expertise lies in the classics. So what drew you to Greek thinking, Greek literature, and so on and so forth? Why is that something that particularly resonated with you? You know, I think it was the same thing that we are talking about now, the tendency for, let's call them deep thoughts with a capital D, capital T, that were sort of running around in my childhood. I had a big book of Greek mythology as a child, the one that everyone has, Dolaire's Greek Myths, which is the best book. The best. For children on Greek myths. <laughs> but I think part of what I loved about those stories was the sense that there was wisdom out there to be understood. That is, that stories could not just tell you about some little thing that happened, but could point to some larger truth or some larger reality. The classics are great for things like that. I mean, there, it's almost becomes a joke. St. John's, we have all the students have to learn Greek, and we have our own textbook that's designed for that purpose. And the sample sentences are things like, the gods know all things, but men know nothing of the gods. It's this very sententious, heavy-handed, <laughs> you know, fate strikes those who do not love the beautiful. There's this sound of profundity that I always loved and was attracted to. Even before I really could recognize what was genuinely profound from what just sounded profound. You know, that takes some maturity to be able to do that. One thing I've always been fascinated about is how, I, this may be oversimplifying, but so much of the Greek, especially sort of in the epic style, right? The Greek investigation of the family relationship is often of the tragic element, and especially with parents and children, sort of like the Ur myth is parents losing children, children destroying parents the tragedy of the lost connection between generations. You also have deep and abiding and an extraordinary interest in that parental relationship at, also at the very opening of biblical civilization, right? So the book of Genesis is also obsessed with, with that kind of relationship between parents and children. And yet in the Bible, you sort of have this, this sense that the parental relationship is not only salvageable, but that successful relationship, even between parents who are very different from each other, is actually the basis for a healthy civilization and polity. So have you thought about that kind of distinction between the two civilizations? Is it a valid distinction? And if I'm right, and if I'm not, just tell me I'm wrong, right? But <laughs> but if I'm right, why is the Greek tradition so interested in or convinced of the tragic element of the parental relationship and the biblical tradition is very upfront and unflinching about the distance between parents and children, but ultimately very optimistic about that relationship. I want to say that they are very different approaches. And you're right that parents and children are all over the place. It's like the person who ate his child, you know, the <laughs> the guy who kills his mom, you know. Right, it's like the cosmology begins exactly. with like a, a fratricide, a fratricide yeah, right? when the, the castration <laughs> of the father and then, the, you know, the Medea murdering her children. I mean, there's tons of stuff like this, right? I think those tragic dimensions point to certain kinds of human possibilities, which even if they don't happen often or if they never happen, tell us something about who we are. I think that was Freud's insight. Not everything in Freud is true. There's a lot of stuff in there that's kind of made up. But he, I think, had the insight that this is something which belongs to a human being in some way. We have this capacity for violence against the people that are closest to us. 
And there's something about that parent-child relationship that is fearsome and terrifying. And I think it's the mystery of the thing. Part of the story of Oedipus is he doesn't know who his parents are. And this is, of course, a real human possibility, right? You don't have to know who your parents are. And you can find out very late in life that the people you thought were your parents are not your parents. It's being born into darkness and having to take on trust the world as it's given to you. Those are important insights, but that the Hebrew Bible is offering us hope in a way that the tragedies are not really interested in. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of hope <laughs> in the Greek tragedies. And like all the Greek choruses, maybe it's better not to be born. And you get that in Job in the Bible. <laughs> you know, you, that's not the message of Genesis at all, I don't think. Right. Like in Jewish tradition, you get it would have been easier not to be born, but it would be better to be born, right? Yeah, true on both counts. But I think right. about, you know, Rebecca and Isaac, who in a way are maybe the parents who spring to mind as flawed in obvious ways. So, you know, they're not talking to each other. They disagree about which child is the best. And, you know, Isaac actually favors maybe the wrong child. So Rebecca does all this subterfuge and, uh, you know, teaches Jacob all of her ways of deception and trickery, which he uses throughout his life. But it's also true that without that partnership, without Rebecca's presence, Rebecca has a real role to play in getting Jacob launched onto the world in the foundation of Israel. And both of the parents in some way are crucial. And that I feel like is true throughout those stories is that both parents or, you know, all three parents in the case of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, they all are part of the mix. What I love about it is that these people are very admirable in certain ways and really frustrating in other ways. It's a different kind of self-knowledge I think that you get from it. So it's more of a recognition of human nature as you really do see it. So we don't normally see people killing their father or marrying their mothers. That's very weird. Or eating your children. This is wild stuff, right? It's just, it's in the realm of dreams and imagined possibilities, but it's not a part of our daily reality. Whereas the rivalry between Rachel and Leah, that feels real. That's something that you might see. Or Jacob's inability to not favor the one son of the favorite wife over everyone else, which is really, I think, a big mistake. <laughs> you know, it's really not good parenting. And it's connected to all sorts of discourse and dialogues about infertility and favoring one over another. You're right. It's so real, so complex, so muddy. I very much love the opportunity to think through the stories about the muddiness of one's own life and one's own situations and to understand that God's choice, it's not a choice of the pure and the perfect. It's a choice of a certain kind of muddling over other kinds of muddling. <laughs> and I, anyway, so that, that's, my that's my lukewarm take. I'm sure that there are deeper things to say about the differences between them. That's so fascinating. And I suppose it, it's a good way to kind of come back to your book because ruminating on these texts, on these traditions, is doing something other than advancing a career, other than providing sustenance, other than enhancing one's prestige. And in your book, one of the central, central pieces of it is that leisure time, defined a very particular way, leisure time is very important. So can you talk a little bit about why leisure is important and how to use it? Most common approach to leisure that I take is to think about in our culture, that is, it's a culture of overwork where achievement is often defined in really narrow terms, a certain kind of respectable job with a respectable income. 
even in the case of meaningful work, it's always for the sake of something else. You know, you work for an end and we easily fall into the trap of doing things that don't really make sense and giving that up is extremely difficult. So leisure is the way I describe the space for any activity in which you might say your life culminates. So it's not just that you're not working because you might be just taking a break, watching TV, playing cards. Right. We could call that recreation. Exactly. But it's an activity which has nothing beyond itself. It's something that once we're there, time slows down, we're in it, and we know that this is essential to who we are and how we want to live. It could be time with your family. It could be time in worship or in study connected to worship, or it could be time in nature. I think there's, that's very common, but it has to be something that really feels culminating grand and worthwhile, I think, for it to really be leisure. For Aristotle, which is really at the root of this way of thinking, it's in that leisure that your happiness is, that your flourishing is when you're most fully human. And that doesn't mean that it's where you necessarily feel the best. It might be painful or difficult in the same way that family and study are both <laughs> painful and difficult in their own ways. It Nonetheless, you know in, the, in your bones that that's what you're supposed to be doing. So I was so fascinated to read this, and I sort of emerged from this larger Jewish tradition that values what the Talmud would call Torah Lishma, studying the tradition or the Torah for its own sake. And then this kind of gets developed particularly in the last, I'd say, like 250 years, particularly in Lithuania. Lithuania ends up producing this like ferociously analytical and disciplined and creative study culture that dominates the American scene today. And the reason I mention it is because it's fundamentally like the slogan of the American, you know, Jewish study culture that emerges to a large degree from Lithuania and also from other places. This study culture, the slogan is Torah Lishma, is studying, you know, the tradition for its own sake. But one thing that I think is an interesting point of contrast, or maybe complementarity with the leisure framework, is that the way that the Torah Shema approach conceptualizes the, the virtue of study for its own sake, pursuing wisdom for its own sake, is that it's rooted in this, in this idea, in this kind of like ancient rabbinic text that teaches that if the world was to be without Torah study, right, or the pursuit of wisdom, I suppose we could abstract for the purpose of the conversation. If the world was without Torah study for one moment, it would cease to exist. And I think the takeaway from that is, you know, we humans are the only meaning-making creatures on earth. And learning for the sake of learning is the way that we do that, is the way that we, we discover and make meaning. So is it worth, especially in a contemporary context where people just don't feel obligated to do anything, uh, and in fact, people find it so difficult to do anything that's not part of the quote-unquote rat race, right? But is it worth thinking about learning not as the way that we choose to spend our discretionary time in a virtuous way, right, our leisure time, but actually as what we owe to the future of the human experience and therefore human existence? Is it worth thinking maybe in more like obligatory terms about the importance of study? I'm of at least two minds because I feel in some sense the truth of the claim that if no one were any longer studying Torah or studying for its own sake, that the world would cease to exist. That is somehow, (laughs) it's at least true that its meaning would drop out. 
in some fundamental way. And I think in a way that's also Aristotelian. Right. If there's no activity holding up the high station, then the whole thing is just a mess. There's nothing worthwhile anymore. Right. Then this is all just an infomercial, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) At best. Right. At best. So part of me feels that, and certainly I feel like my own vocational call as I'm experiencing it right now is this has got to be preserved. We can't have a community, a culture, a society without this kind of study. It's necessary. And if something's necessary, that provides obligation. The reason why I basically never use that language and maybe won't, apart from with reference to myself, because I feel that obligation, is that it's really just a rhetorical decision. Mm. You know, you're like, eat your broccoli. That's the worst way to get people to do stuff, right? They're like, oh, look, people are already telling me I've got to do this and I've got to do that. I also think that for the right kind of study, pursuing it out of love and enthusiasm is also necessary. It's not sufficient. So if you just follow whatever you like to study, you might make some mistakes and waste a lot of time. But it is necessary. So my strategy has been to try to communicate enthusiasm and try to generate enthusiasm. So to speak, the carrot more than the stick, like the, mm. the positive incentive. It's like, no, oh, no, this is something that you want. This is something that you care about. This is something that matters to you. This, can, so, this is something that can help you make your way in the world. If you make something seem exciting, then they're much more likely to do it. Their default mode is, there's so many things I should be doing that I'm not doing. There's so many ways that I'm not good enough. Most of the people I encounter are overwhelmed with guilt and they feel over-obligated. I'm curious if I could kind of make one more attempt to defend the obligation language. Right. Right? Might right. that be one more case where the notion of obligation might be important? You know, friend of the pod, Tommy Collison, we had him on to talk great books, actually. All right. I saw Tommy tweeted, it's finally time to just let Shakespeare go. He's not helping us anymore. And the perspective was very much, what can wisdom do for us? Which is a perspective that most of these essays, both for and against Shakespeare, right, are written from. Like, what can Shakespeare do for us? And even the ones that are making the point that you don't need to make the argument for Shakespeare in order to say, well, you'll be better at critical thinking so you can get a good job in a law firm. Even the folks making the case for Shakespeare in the sense that it'll enrich your life, right? They're still making the case from the perspective of what can wisdom do for us, as opposed to making the case from the perspective of like, is it possible to have obligations to wisdom, right? So what I mean by that is we all accept, although, you know, we do live at a, at a time in social life, at least in America, where we are we are as uncomfortable with unchosen obligations as it's possible to be. Like even even the most elementary ones like family, we still have a hard time with, right? So like every year it's like, I hate those articles every Thanksgiving where it's like, how do you talk to your crazy uncle about his stupid <laughs> politics? I'm like, leave the guy alone. Like, yeah, he's a scumbag, but like leave him alone. He's your family, right? Or, or maybe find something that you have in common with him. Yeah, like uh, hug your uncle. <laughs> Like a holy cow. But, you know, I think your average person who's not a sociopath does, at least in principle, accept that we have unchosen obligations to family, uh, maybe to friends, although that's a little more controversial. But we do have some unchosen obligations. So my question is, is it possible to develop unchosen obligations to texts or to traditions, which would be a way of saying 
Of course, there's so many worthwhile and incredible things throughout world culture, and ideally we'd explore all of them. And we're so happy that there are people who have unchosen obligations to the Ramayana or the Mahabharata. It happens to be that in our society, we have to kind of satisfy our unchosen obligations first. So one of those might be Shakespeare, because it's just such a foundational part of our lives. Another one might be the writings of Frederick Douglass, like you can't be a moral person in this country without engaging Douglass. Is it possible to think about unchosen obligations to text like we might think about unchosen obligations to families? And would that still run afoul of the, yes, but it's not rhetorically helpful to think that way? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I think once again, but what you're saying is, is very helpful and clarifying. I think if I had to characterize what I see my obligation as, I'm extremely grateful for the education that I've received the informal education from my parents in Deep Thoughts and the liberal education I received at St. John's. And I think I have an obligation to pass that on. Mm. So that's in a way an obligation to a text. That is, I think of it as being an obligation to people, but it's right. it's like this book is one which has shaped who I am, for which I'm extremely grateful. And it would be in a way... Um, ungrateful, closed, narrow. It would just be a kind of disgrace if I said, well, you know, this stuff was great for me, but, you know, maybe it's not best for you. Maybe you need something worse, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That to me feels like teacher crime, right? I mean, it's just, and I don't know that I don't see that, to be honest, in a lot of what goes on in education today. There's not a sense of, I've received this wonderful thing All I want is for some young people to experience these things that I've experienced. So that sense, I do feel an obligation. But again, that's an adult's obligation. Mm. It's not a young person's obligation. In a religious context, I can feel more of an obligation. It's a bit embarrassing because being Roman Catholic, you know, we're not famous for knowing our Bible. We're famous for having it digested for us by others. (laughs) You know, my Christian students are very neurotic about reading the Hebrew Bible I taught Genesis last semester. They're like, they're doing stuff that seems wrong. And it's like, (laughs) I relate to this because we're very Talmud centric people, the Jews, right? So we often joke that like the Bible is like the best commentary in the Talmud, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But I also think that if you're serious about your faith, you have to spend some time with this book. So I do feel like people of faith have an obligation that one can appeal to. In a secular context, I find that I don't know what the lever of obligation is. The only thing I'll say that that what you said reminded me of when you said, what do these books do for me? And you're right, there's a flaw in that question. Like, read this. Can you just tell me in advance what I'm going to get out of it? Right. (laughs) Because I, you know, my time, I'm really busy and I've got a lot to do. Well, that, I guess, leads right into the last question. So if I'm thinking about the search for wisdom Certainly within the context of the religious search for wisdom or, or a believer's search for wisdom, but I think in general, biblical religion, or I, I suppose other religions as well, but certainly biblical religion kind of provides two sort of models for how to think about it. There's the idea that God is imminent, right? God is in everything, so wisdom can be sought everywhere. The other perspective is God is transcendent, right? God is above everything, so wisdom should be sought outside of the context of everything else, and everything else is sort of a distraction hindering you from pursuing wisdom. 
So my question is, how do you approach that search for wisdom, right? Are we searching for something in the world or are we searching for something above the world, right? So is the search for wisdom something that should pull us out of the world, maybe towards asceticism, not asceticism for the sake of making the search for wisdom easier, but like really have us regard the world as something less than important, the transcendent perspective, or should the search for wisdom perhaps be something that brings us closer to the world and makes us appreciate God more for creating it, the imminent perspective. So do you have a sense of which one of those feels more intuitive to you? I suppose it depends a bit on what we mean by the world. (laughs) So Mm. I do think, to go back to the story that you opened with, the search for wisdom has to involve going up the mountain. You know, you're going out not knowing what you're going to find, and you're going after the transcendent, it seems to me. So I think that's a necessary part of a journey for wisdom. And I think that one of the things I try to do in the book, I do try to prepare people for that thought. If it feels too easy, then you might not be doing it quite right. <laughs> you know. Oh, I, th- I thought the book was like, it was like hortatory. Like it really, like you, you <laughs> yeah. do go after people, like take your life seriously, guys. <laughs> no, exactly. So I do think that's true. So I think there can be laziness in thinking, you know, wisdom's all around me. I don't need to, you've got to go up the mountain, okay? But I do think that there is a return, so to speak. That is, once you've made a serious commitment and followed things where they lead for a time, you will get back the things that you gave up and you will live in the world more fully, not less fully, but more fully. Because part of what happens is you recover gratitude when that happens. I mean, gratitude in a way is, I think, foundational for wisdom and for faith. And it requires some work to get it. So you've got to go up the mountain. And maybe you'll be called to stay there. There are people who experience calls to live in hermitages and grow vegetables in their yard and pray and maybe get a visitor or two once a year. You know, that's a call that you could have. I think that too is probably a way of being in the world, Mm. just a different one. And I also think it's unusual. And I think no matter what mode of wisdom you're called to, it should involve a way of really being receptive and open to what's around you ultimately and appreciating what, what is handed to you in a given day and It can't always be this effort to escape, I guess is all I'm trying to say. I love it. That effort to escape, you need it. Use it, but know when to let it go and when to go home and live what you've learned in some way. Amen. Thank you so much for coming on. The book is Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. It is so good. I can't recommend it highly enough. Where can the people find you? Twitter. I have a webpage, xenahits.net. I post some reviews and stuff there. But Twitter's easiest place to find me. So uh, that's where they'll find you like chatting with MC Hammer, right? Or like, on, or like Clubhouse also. That's the thing that happened. <laughs> exactly. That, that really did happen. Anyway, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us, Ian. You're amazing. We've just come through such a difficult year that's been so saturated with trials and tragedy. But one of the opportunities it's provided every single one of us is that it's forced us to examine what's really important in life. Now, as we come out of the pandemic, we know there are going to be some lasting scars. But let's make sure we take that opportunity with us as well. Let's remember what's important. Let's commit ourselves to making space for pursuing the things that provide ultimate meaning. Pick up that book you've been a little intimidated to read. 
Ask yourself if perhaps the Bible or Aristotle or the Ramayana or Aquinas or Mary Shelley might help you learn something about yourself or about the world that you otherwise wouldn't know. Because here's a virtual guarantee. Your life will be richer for it, and honestly, so will the lives of your family, your community, and your society. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like what you heard, here's what you can do. Just give us a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you do, or if you have any questions, comments, just hit me up on Twitter so I can let the world know how uh, amazing you are for listening. That's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.